It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Good evening, everyone, and happy Groundhog Day. Punxsutawney Phil emerged from his hole this morning and saw his shadow, meaning six more weeks of a cold winter lies ahead. Sorry. While a longer winter may push us to stay indoors, cozied up on the couch, hopefully watching the readout, it is not impeding the January 6th committee, which remains focused on its investigation into the failed attempt to overthrow our democracy and the twice impeached, disgraced former president who led that effort. Today, the committee heard from Stuart Rhodes, the head of the far-right group The Oath Keepers. Rhodes is charged with seditious conspiracy related to his alleged involvement in the attack on the Capitol. Rhodes pleaded the fifth to questions related to the attack, his lawyer told NBC News. The committee also met with Jeffrey Clark, the former DOJ official and Trump loyalist who tried to nullify the election results in Georgia and other states. Remember, Clark actually appeared before the committee back in November, but failed to cooperate after asserting claims of privilege to avoid answering questions. And last night, we told you about the New York Times reporting on the efforts by Donald Trump and his advisors to use the authority of the federal government to seize voting machines after the 2020 election. Well, now the January 6th committee is adding that to its list of things to examine, according to the Times. The committee recently received documents from the Trump White House, including what court filings described as a document containing presidential findings concerning the security of the 2020 election after it occurred and ordering various actions. Those documents are just a few of the more than 700 pages the committee has obtained that Trump tried to keep hidden. The committee has also received more than 60,000 pages of records so far and heard from more than 475 witnesses. And according to committee member Congressman Jamie Raskin, they expect to add Ivanka Trump to that witness list later this week, but that has yet to be confirmed. Joining me now is former Senator Claire McCaskill of Missouri and Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor. Thank you both uh, for being here. So there's a lot that's going on right now, um, Claire, that has to do with Donald Trump sort of admitting to all his crimes. <laughs> Let's just put it that way, uh, including what does seem to be efforts to, I guess you can't call it anything other than sort of buy off witnesses, right, with promises of, of, of various things, including pardons. Donald Trump, according to Politico, considered blanket pardons for the January 6th attackers before he left office, according to two people with direct knowledge of the matter. One advisor claims he said some people think I should pardon them. Um, he thought if he could do it, these people would never have to testify or be deposed. I would love each of you to comment on that. But uh, Claire, to start with you, there was a lot of Republican reaction to this idea of pardons. Lindsey Graham said bad idea. Trump, of course, then called him a schmuck or whatever, called him a rhino. Uh, even Mitch McConnell said, ooh, bad idea. But I suspect that, that these Republicans saying it was a bad idea is probably meaningless. It's like Susan Collins having concerns. But what do you make of the fact that they felt the need to come out and say not a good idea? Well, it's pretty clear Trump's ready to burn the whole thing down. Um, he's, you know, he's, he's said that he wanted Pence to overturn the election in plain English. 
Uh, he has done things repeatedly that shows his disdain and, frankly, disgust with the rule of law. Uh, whenever he says some people think that always <laughs> means it's just him. Um, that's a phrase he uses quite frequently. But, Joy, one of the things I'm really worried about right now, I mean, really worried about, is we've got to back this truck up and look, what is the purpose of the 1-6 committee? What is it they're trying to accomplish? They're trying to uncover evidence for two purposes, to educate the American people and to provide evidence to law enforcement. They are gathering that evidence, but the clock is ticking and they have to turn in the not too distant future to that really important job of educating the American people. And here's what I'm really worried about. I've got sleepless nights about this. We got 30 percent of America that are never going to believe a word they say. We got 30 percent of America that know how bad Trump is, know what he tried to do, know that he should be held criminally responsible. There's 40 percent of America. And you know what they're doing right now? They're worried about the price of groceries and gas, and they've tuned this out. So this committee has to figure out how to communicate with them, how they get this information to them plainly and cleanly with passion and with urgency. And that really needs to be the next thing up because they've got an awful lot of evidence now, and they could keep gathering evidence from now until December. Mm-hmm. But really, they've only got about 90 days to really begin in earnest educating the American people about what really went on, what Trump did, and maybe more importantly, what he failed to do. Well, you know, I mean, Glenn, what educates people more than anything uh, sometimes is a prosecution. I mean, the Department of Justice is real busy looking at, you know, the, the, the you know, mayor, the attorney in, in Baltimore buying houses. Like, they're spending a whole lot of time looking at that kind of stuff. But on this, you know, in that second third of people that Claire described, there are all of the Republicans in Capitol Hill are in that third. They know what Trump did was wrong. Mitch McConnell knows what he did was wrong. But they hope to benefit from the things that he did and the conditioning of the base of the Republican Party to not care about crime as long as they get Trump back and long as they get to rule. So they know it's wrong. They just want to benefit from it. So the problem is, I think, to Claire's point, no matter what this committee ultimately says, The Republicans with power are just going to ignore it, try to throw it out and say, we don't care. We want to use Trumpism for power for ourselves. So to me, this leads right back to the DOJ's doorstep because seditious conspiracy, in theory, Trump said they won't have to testify against me if I pardon them. How does he not face charges of seditious conspiracy just like Stuart Rhodes? You know, Joy, we have ample evidence to charge Donald Trump well beyond reasonable uh, probable cause, which is the standard to arrest and indict. I maintain that based on the public reporting, we have proof beyond a reasonable doubt, right, which is the, the mother of all burdens of proof. And yes, I would love to see some really captivating public hearings put on by uh, Congress, by the House Select Committee. But I really want to see all of this evidence tested in the crucible of a public criminal trial, because whether that changes minds or not is almost beside the point. If we have high government officials who abuse their authority and committed crimes against the United States, federal crimes, they need to be held accountable. And the dangling of pardons to domestic terrorists, J6 defendants is the latest example. Now, let me say, can we charge that criminally? We could probably roll it into a speaking indictment, a narrative of a conspiracy to commit crimes against the United States, what we call a 371 conspiracy. But let me take on the dangling of pardons directly, because as a former career prosecutor, some might accuse me of wanting to find crimes under every rock and around every corner. When he says, you know what, 
if I'm elected, if I become president, I will consider giving pardons to the J6 defendants who are treated unfairly. I don't know that that can directly be charged as obstructing justice because of its conditional nature. I don't know that it can directly be charged as witness tampering, again, because of its conditional nature. But I went and I reread the insurrection statute. And it says if you engage in insurrection or provide aid or comfort to those who do, I think those statements by Donald Trump may make an appearance in court in the insurrection cases and give aid and comfort to the insurrectionists. So I think there is a viable legal argument that Donald Trump, by dangling pardons to those domestic terrorists, actually gave aid and comfort to the insurrectionists. And I mean, to the point, you know, in your former prosecutor yourself, I mean, Claire, a, a grand jury in this case does not seem unreasonable in a situation where Donald Trump is admitting that he did it. We have written evidence that there are multiple people sending memos saying, here's how you overturn the election. He's now put out a public statement saying Mike Pence should have overturned the election. He wanted to seize voting machines, went to three different agencies, including the Pentagon, said seize voting machines. I don't know what else he has to do other than walk up to Merrick Garland and show him a piece of paper that says, I tried to steal the erection and committed insurrection. I don't know what else you get. And the, the benefit of him of, the, of charging him is that that second set, those Republicans who know it was wrong, they don't want to face Trump again. Some of them want to be president. The way to stop that is if he gets convicted of seditious conspiracy, he cannot. He is then ineligible to run for office, just like Madison Cawthorn will be if he doesn't win. Isn't there a, 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 a cynical argument that might be able to be made um, that that is the only way? to even get those Republicans to actually react to his crimes? Well, there's certainly an argument that can be made. But keep in mind, we've got a Department of Justice that has been taking weeks to figure out that someone can just not show up to Congress, not show up. We're talking about Mark Meadows. Um, you can talk about him being a chief of staff and executive privilege, but he didn't even bother to show up. That is contemptuous of Congress. Mm -hmm. And they still have not made a decision on that. I don't have a lot of faith in the feds to go quickly or efficiently. I don't have. And I do know this, that the operative word of what you said was convict. And, you know, that is I mean, as the former prosecutor, and I think Glenn will back me up here. When I got a case and got the evidence to file, of course, I had to be confident of the guilt of the defendant. Of course, I had to make sure there was sufficient evidence proved beyond a reasonable doubt. But the other consideration was, what will the jury think? Will I be able to overcome jury nullification? Will I be able to get a unanimous? Keep in mind, this has to be unanimous. So I'm just envisioning a prosecution. If it's a federal prosecution, no way it's heard before November. No way. So you got Trump, the martyr, saying that, oh, look, they're coming after me. And that might even help him with some of the people out there that right now are worried about the price of groceries and gas. So that's why I'm saying get the evidence, present the evidence to the American people and put pressure on law enforcement to do the right thing here. But this is not a walk in the park to get a conviction. It'll well, be hard because America is very divided and it's going to be very hard to make sure juries aren't divided. Well, and, that, and that's the thing, uh, Glenn. I mean, Trump will just try to voir dire an all-white jury to try to up his odds, right? Like, he'll just try to keep all the black people off the jury. Like, that's a pretty, oh, you know, it's clear what he would do. But, I mean, what is your response to that? That a prosecution or even a, impaneling a grand jury, which seems just so logical. I'm not a lawyer, but it does seem logical to at least begin the process. But the DOJ is just complete stasis on this. I'm sorry, but it alarms me because we don't have very many roadblocks left 
to try to save our democracy from this man and his party because they're all willing to go along with it. All of them. Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, he can call them names all he wants. He will take the need to Trump as well. All of them will. So I don't know what else to do other than for the DOJ to step up. Your thoughts? We can't win the case we don't bring. And I agree with Claire. We don't want to bring a a bare probable cause case, but we don't have that. Frankly, Joy, we could have stapled volume two of the Mueller report to an application for an arrest warrant on as many as 10 counts of federal felony obstruction of justice. And 10 federal judges out of 10 would have signed that arrest warrant. I will also say as a former career Fed, the 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 determination of the feds to try to investigate things exhaustively and to perfection is well known. But when public safety is at risk and when democracy hangs in the balance, once you have probable cause plus and you decline to bring a prosecution, you're endangering the community. I had to make those decisions all the time as chief of homicide at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office when we were investigating covertly, which I believe the Department of Justice is doing. They can be investigating without issuing grand jury subpoenas. If we are investigating covertly, the moment we have probable cause every day, we have to make the calculation. Do we keep this covert or we do? Do we do a takedown, arrest people, protect the community and build through superseding indictments? I fear that the DOJ is miscalculating the danger to our democracy and the anxiety being suffered by the American people because they see high government officials who have committed crime going unpunished. Yeah. And and it's sending a message to the future Donald Trumps, who may be even worse than him, believe it or not, that you can get away with it, that you can literally try to overthrow our democracy and reverse an election and try to get the Pentagon and the military to help you. And there will be no consequences. God help us when an intelligent Donald Trump takes that office. Uh, I fear that. Ah, breathing. Claire McCaskill, (laughs) Glenn Kirshner, thank you both very much. Okay, up next on The Readout, the explosive discrimination lawsuit against the NFL and what it reveals about a culture that former coach Brian Flores compares to a plantation. Plus, the fallout from Whoopi Goldberg's comments about race and the Holocaust and whether that could have been less about punishment and more about having a teachable moment. And tonight's absolute worst are like the supervillains in the Marvel movies. But unfortunately, these monsters are directing their cartoonish rage at children. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. We didn't have to file a lawsuit for, for the world to know that 
there's a problem from a, from a hiring standpoint in regards to minority coaches in the National Football League. The numbers speak for themselves. Right. Uh, we filed the lawsuit um, so that we could create some change. Um, and that's important to me. I think we're at a fork in the road right now. Former Miami Dolphins head coach Brian Flores is joining former quarterback Colin Kaepernick and stating the obvious about the NFL's problems with racial discrimination. Speaking out following the blockbuster lawsuit he filed Tuesday against the NFL and three of its teams alleging racial discrimination in hiring practices. The Dolphins fired Flores last month despite two winning seasons. Flores claimed discrimination was a factor in his firing, which the Dolphins deny. There is currently just one, one black head coach, Pittsburgh's Mike, Mike Tomlin, among the NFL's 32 teams, 32 teams that profit from a labor force that is nearly 60 percent black. Flores's class action lawsuit takes aim specifically at the league's Rooney rule, requiring teams to interview minority candidates for top vacancies, alleging that he's endured several interviews just to satisfy that requirement, including just last week with the New York Giants. Three days before that job interview, Flores received an accidental congratulatory text message from his former boss, Patriots coach Bill Belichick, on landing the job. The text was apparently intended for a different Brian, Brian Dayball, who the team had already settled on for their new head coach. Flores called the episode humiliating, and the Giants insist that the, they interviewed him in good faith and nearly hired him. For its part, the NFL says it will fight. In a statement, the league disingenuously touted its deep commitment to equitable employment practices, adding that diversity is core to everything we do, don't laugh, and calling Flores' claims without merit, without calling for an investigation. Apparently, the NFL is under the impression that slapping end racism in the end zone and getting Jay-Z to produce a hip-hop Super Bowl halftime show signifies a commitment. From the same league that blackballed Colin Kaepernick for kneeling during the national anthem to protest racial injustice, today's Flores, today Flores acknowledged that his lawsuit could similarly end his career in coaching. I understand the risks, and yes, it was a difficult decision, and I went back and forth. Um, and like I said, I, I, I'm, I love coaching. I do. But this is bigger than, than that. Joining me now is Hugh Jackson, an 18-year NFL veteran coach. Most recently, he was head coach of the Cleveland Browns, now head coach at Grambling State University. And Angela Rye, newly minted ESPN special correspondent, and I am so excited about that. I'm going to put a pin in it because I'm going to start cheering for you right here on this set, but I'm going to hold for just a second and talk to the coach first. I'm going I'm to go to the coach first just because you have been in this position before. So Blind Flores is alleging the Dolphins owner, Stephen Ross, offered him $100,000 per loss if he would lose. Um, and, and I know this is something that you were quite familiar with yourself because you have made very similar allegations. Talk about this idea of paying a team to lose and creating like, you know, plans over a certain period of time to have loss after loss after loss after loss. Really appreciate that you said uh, creating a plan because that's really what it was. I don't want anyone to think that anybody offered me money for every game to go lose. What I was brought into was a four-year plan, a structure uh, that talked about aggregate rankings, talked about being the youngest team in the league, talked about the number of draft picks, talked about a, a different number of categories that we would get paid for. And none of them talked about winning. Winning was in year three and four. And coaches, as coaches, when you talk about bonus structure, and this was seen as a bonus plan. Uh, that bonus plan wasn't presented to me until I was on the job for about a month and a half. The bonus plan was not structurally put together and finished until the summer. And that was in June. 
And when I really looked at it, I really didn't understand it because as a coach, we know one of two things. It's winning and losing. There's really nothing else uh, that we can be uh, compensated for uh, or that we want to be compensated for. So as I started to look at my team, as we started playing the preseason, um, last year at Cincinnati in 2015, I was pro football's offensive coach of the year. So I know what good football looks like. And I knew we didn't have a very good team to compete. So the difference with me is when people talk about tanking, see, there's different forms of tanking. Uh There's the situation as to lose, but then there's tanking where you build a team that cannot win, where you don't have enough talent to compete at the highest level. So you can win. And to me, that's a whole different animal. And then you put a minority coach out in front of it. Uh There's only in 101 year history then that's a problem. So all the narratives become the coach can't coach. You don't know what he's doing. And you fight these things as a coach. But the money that was given to everybody at the end of the year, based on whatever those percentages was, was for obviously working within that structure. And I was told that this is something that they had at Pilot J Flying. I was told that this is something that kept the group collaborative. I fought against it. I told the owner, I'm not interested in extra money. I thought he paid uh-huh. me well enough. I took that money and created, I mean, acquired better players for a football That's team. a win. Because that's the whole point. You know, and Angela, this is a, this is a league that, you know, I, I grew up an obsessive football fan. I got out of it because over time I couldn't love the game as much. I mean, this is a league that it used to be about 70% of those players were black. It's now down under 60%. You know, fewer parents are letting their kids play because of issues like head injuries, but just the treatment of black people. How can you possibly have a league that has 70% black players and only come up with three or four people who can ever be a head coach? They know the game better than anybody else. Where are the coaches? Where are the people in management? Your thoughts. And I think, Joy, we have to ask the question, where are the opportunities? But before we do that, I just want to take a moment, Coach Jackson, to commend you. The first day of Black History Month, you announced this groundbreaking name, image and likeness deal for those athletes at Grambling. And they finally have the opportunity to have a real income to help support their families. Many of us know there are too many students that are supporting their families off of scholarship money. So just kudos to you. Thank you for making black history and therefore American history. Um, Enjoy to your question. You know, I think that we really have to acknowledge the fact that the NFL's pipeline is broken, right? Um, Coach Flores and his lawsuit also making black history. And as our good sister friend Erin Haynes said to us, um, cited all of the ancestors in the first couple of lines um, in this lawsuit. What I think we have to also acknowledge is he hits right head on in the injunctive relief portion of this lawsuit, which, of course, is rooted in the Civil Rights Act of 1866, Section 1981, which says it is prohibited to discriminate based on race um, as it relates to employment contracts. In the injunctive relief part of this, he makes it very clear that players actually need to be involved in the hiring process, that there needs Mm -hmm. to be a diverse committee that can weigh in on whether or not a coach is hired, an offensive or a defensive coordinator is hired, or a GM. And that is where the rubber meets the road. We know that the NFL has traditionally been known as a good old boys network, and Mm -hmm. whoever does not march to the beat of that drum doesn't really have a pathway. We're watching Brian Flores interview today, calm, collected, cool. And this is the same person they want us to believe is an angry black man. Right. And those labels you carry with you, um, despite their truth, 
or not. Right. And that is the real issue. When you have folks who look like you in decision making positions, whether they are running the field or they are in um, C-suite positions, that makes all the difference in the world. So the first thing that has to be done in the NFL, the culture has to change. And that means the people who are in positions of power to make decisions also have to change. Amen to that. And I mean, Coach, you know, it, it is a situation where, you know, I wonder even when you were you know, coaching in the NFL, was there discouragement to even speak out on black issues? We know that Colin Kaepernick, he's been expelled from the league. Brian Flores was one of the first people to come out and make a statement after George Floyd's murder. He was very forthright. He said he vividly remembers the Colin Kaepernick conversations. The idea that players were kneeling in support of social justice was something some people couldn't wrap their head around. I haven't seen the same outrage from people of influence when the conversation turns to Ahmaud Arbery. Breonna Taylor, and most recently George Floyd. So he spoke out because it feels like the, the, the NFL is disingenuous. You know, they want to do the black square kind of uh, support for black people, but they don't want to actually invest the money and in, in the talent to allow people to thrive. And it seems like he's not really popular for being that guy who speaks out on racial justice. Well, it seems that way. I, I, I hope this is not just about racial justice. I'm talking about this situation because there were so many different, you know, areas that Brian touched. But mm-hmm. uh, obviously, we an issue. Let's just be honest. I mean, we've been very transparent about that. There's a problem in the National Football League with minority hiring practices. Yeah, so that's absolutely. Just, I, I mean, 101 years, only 19. But the thing that's changing, I hope everybody can recognize it. I think the goalpost is starting to move again. I think we can see that there's more minority GMs right. than there are coaches right now. And yeah. we got to look yeah. and see. I'm just <laughs> honest, there coming from from uh, Harvard and Columbia. And that's great. That's great. So yeah. it says to me that we don't want the real coaches no more. We, yeah. We're into the analytic world all of a sudden. And the guys who've worked hard and have their own algorithm, that those guys don't matter anymore. And that's that's very interesting. Last word to you, Angela Rod. Do you think he winds up ever being ever coaching again? And if he doesn't, does that add to his uh, legal, uh, you know, the power of his lawsuit? Well, perhaps, Joy, what I hope is that they take a real look at what he suggests in the injunctive relief portions, again, of this lawsuit. They are more than reasonable. So if they're willing to do some of that, there are absolutely going to be folks on those hiring committees, absolutely Mm -hmm. going to be owners. There's not one black owner in the league. When that changes, Brian Flores' opportunities change, and so do Colin Kaepernick's and everybody who comes them to make a dent in what needs to change. Amen, amen, amen. Hugh Jackson, please let us know if you join that class action suit or uh, get involved in it in any way. Angela Rye, you're going to have me watching ESPN. I thought after Jamel wasn't there, I was like, I'll never watch ESPN again. But you know what? I'm going to watch never. it again because you're there. I appreciate you. I'm going to watch you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, we love Jamel. And I'm watching her new thing, too. Oh, there's so many things for me to be, like, getting in on Black Girl Magic everywhere. Thank you very much, sister. Appreciate you. Okay, coming up. ABC suspends Whoopi Goldberg for her recent remarks on race and the Holocaust. Did the network miss out on a prime opportunity for discussion and learning? Hmm, right back. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. 
The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Last night, ABC News suspended Whoopi Goldberg for two weeks from The View, a day after a discussion about a Tennessee school board banning the graphic novel Mouse, which is about Nazi death camps during World War II. Here's what she said. If you're yeah. going to do this, then let's be truthful about it, because the Holocaust isn't about race. It's not about race. It's not about what race. What is it about? Because you, it's about man's inhumanity to man. Hours after those comments, Goldberg apologized, saying that she misspoke. She apologized again the following day. Anti-Defamation League CEO Jonathan Greenblatt joined Whoopi and the other View host to explain how her comments were inaccurate and harmful. You see, Hitler's ideology, the Third Reich, was predicated on the idea that the Aryans, the Germans, were a, quote, master race, and the Jews were a subhuman race. It was a racialized anti-Semitism. Okay. Now, that might not fit exactly or feel different than the way we think about race in 21st century America, where primarily it's about people of color. But throughout the Jewish people's history, they have been marginalized, they have been persecuted, they have been slaughtered in large part because many people felt they were not just a different religion, but indeed a different race. On Tuesday night, Greenblatt warned about unfairly condemning Goldberg over the comments, saying, I don't believe in cancel culture. We need counsel culture. Joining me now is Yara Rosenberg, contributing writer for The Atlantic, where he writes the Deep Sh- Deep Shtetl newsletter. And Chris Witherspoon, entertainment journalist and founder and CEO of Pop Viewers. Thank you both for being here. And I'm going to start with you, um, Mr. Rosenberg. Um, so here's ABC News's, um, uh, this was her statement. Uh, Kim, and she's named Kim Godwin. She's the ABC News president. And she wrote, while Whoopi has apologized, I've asked her to take time to reflect and learn about the impact of her comments. The entire ABC News organization stands in solidarity with our Jewish colleagues, friends, family and communities. What do you make of this situation? And if you, you know, were the king of the world and could make everything happen the way you wanted, do you think that suspending her was the right move? What I think that ABC did here is what we increasingly do when a public figure or even someone in our lives messes up, makes a mistake like this, Um, even when they apologize, there is this sense that there need to be consequences, that we need to punish someone or it doesn't count. We don't just accept an apology and say, we hope that this person will change and will grow. Um, If I was king of the world, I would change that, not just here, but in almost every situation that we do that. I think that it's important that there be consequences and that there be accountability. But I think uh, as a society, especially in the age of social media with screenshots and reducing people to their worst moments in tweets, we've sort of become this society that doesn't allow a path for people to grow or change or apologize. Um, and Whoopi apologized on air. Um, and she understood what she did was what she said was incorrect. And it's led to this great conversation where people are learning things they otherwise wouldn't have learned. And wouldn't that have been a better conversation to have had on The View than to take Whoopi off The View and then to stop the conversation? I think a lot of more of what I would have liked to see. Yeah. And I think a lot of people felt like it wasn't so much the on air on The View, but it was what she went on to say um, when she was uh, when she when she went on Stephen Colbert's show. Let me play that real quick. I thought we were having 
uh, discussion mm -hmm. uh, because I've, I feel being black, when we talk about race, it's a very different thing to me. Mm -hmm. So I said that I, I felt that the Holocaust wasn't about race. And people got very, very, very angry and still are. But I thought it was a, a salient discussion because as a black person, I think of race as being something that I can see. So I see you and I know what race you are. And the discussion was about how I felt about that. I felt that, that it was really more about man's inhumanity to man. Just real quick, Ian, Mr. Rosenberg, do you think that that made it worse? Or what do you think of that? So I think that there was elsewhere in that same Colbert segment, she said that uh, this was about white people attacking other white people. And that was particularly a line that uh, troubled a lot of Jewish people, because in the European conception of race, um, the, the Nazis were the Aryan master race and the Jews were this parasitic lower race. Um, and they did not consider themselves of the same race at all. And it wasn't like, oh, the same people, they all look the same. It was a, Whoopi was understandably projecting American conceptions of race right. onto European conceptions of race. Yeah. Um, and that, that, that's problematic, not just as a historical point, but because today, imagine Jews are in their synagogues and many of us look white. But yet white supremacists come around and they shoot us. Yeah. And you might wonder, why does that happen? It's because their conception of race is different. So if we fail to understand this, right, we fail to recognize anti-Semitism and be able to stop it. And so yeah. that's why I think it troubled people. Mm -hmm. But um, I think, again, like I said before, she then after the Colbert segment, that's she apologized the next morning. She yeah. had that conversation with Jonathan Greenblatt of the ADL. And I think that things go in the right direction when we have those yeah. conversations and recognize that Jews are just 2% of the American population. Most people haven't met us. Yeah. They have a lot of stereotypes about us. Mm -hmm. And the way you learn about this is by talking to us and having those conversations. And I'd much rather see more of that. Indeed. Chris, let's get to the TV of it, because there's a lot here to pack in. Number one, I wondered, did she, did, was there a publicist involved in her doing that, uh, that second interview that night? I'm curious about that. But can you take us inside a little bit? You know, how did her, do you, do you know how the, the fellow cast mates on The View reacted to it? And just as a, as a media enterprise, media world story, what do you make of all this? I mean, one, part one, I think that she should not have gone on The Colbert Report or on a Colbert show, uh, because it, it it wasn't really thought out. I feel like she should have saved it for the next morning to do something that was a bit more produced, uh, a bit more thoughtful, and had sort of the cosign of her bosses mm -hmm. at ABC News. Um, and I think that, that the table, if you look at the table, there is so much learning that can happen at The View. You think about what The View was meant to be when it first started out. It wasn't always under ABC News. It got under ABC News in 2014. Back when it first started, it was under ABC Entertainment. And that show was a place to have lively discourse, lively debate, lively discussions, and to really learn from each other. And I feel like when you remove someone's chair and you suspend them, you almost take away that chance to learn. I think a lot about how Oprah, when she had her talk show, she always said on, on her best days, her talk show was a classroom. Uh, and I think on The View, some days you are a teacher, some days you are a student. And if you suspend someone, they can no longer be in class and learn and get yeah. schooled. And I think Whoopi being there and coming back, she'd be able to learn and get schooled by her other panelists. One of them who her grandfather is Sephardic Jew. 
uh, Sonny Hostin. Her grandfather is a Sephardic Jew. Uh, she's someone who I believe also could kind of school whoopee throughout this week if she was on the air about the nuances of the Jewish culture. I, I have to say, Chris, I am I was yesterday old when I found out that, that the view had shifted under a under ABC News. Is that typical for daytime talk shows? Are they typically under the news uh, umbrella? And, and do you do I mean, what was the source of that? Because, yeah, I think it's different when it's a news versus an entertainment sort of world. Yeah, from what I understand, I believe in 2014, the ratings at The View just weren't on the upswing. And ABC News, I think the show was being shot already in New York, and ABC News just knew how to do great TV. Yeah. And the ratings have skyrocketed. The View has become very much so a news source where you're seeing a lot more politics and a lot less lifestyle. But you got to remember, Whoopi Goldberg got on that show in 2007. She's been in that chair for a very long time and was there when the show was more lifestyle, more entertainment. And Whoopi is not a reporter. She is not a journalist. We know her to be a comedian. What she said was not funny. She deserves to have been disciplined and to learn from this. But I think she should be back in that chair and able to learn and uh, be around her co-hosts and have uh, conversations. I, see, I ran out of time. So now I have to bring you back, Chris, to talk about the whole CNN situation, because that's the other tea that I needed. But I will just text you and get that tea later. Thank you very much. I Yara can Rose. write a memoir, OK? You're going to have to do, <laughs> now, don't write a memoir. Come on here and then write the memoir. Uh, Yara Rosenberg, okay. thank you very much. Chris Witherspoon of Pop Viewers Prep, thank you very much. Appreciate you. OK, thank you. And stick around, because tonight's Absolute Worst is coming up next. But before we go to break, I do want to take a second to thank the NAACP once again for nominating the readout and want for their prestigious 2022 Image Awards. We are up against some way stiff competition, y'all, okay, uh, in the outstanding news and information and outstanding host category. So don't forget to cast your vote at NAACPImageAwards.net. Voting ends this Friday. We're back after this. Something remarkable happened on Twitter today. Judy Bloom trended, and not because something bad happened, but because folks started sharing their memories of reading her work, which then turned into an online celebration of reading and rereading. The act of passing along worn covers and dog-eared pages to your friends. Bloom's Forever is one of the most challenged books in America, so she knows a thing or two about censorship, which is really why she started trending, because book bans are back. Today in five states, proposed legislation for rulings may soon punish educators, school districts, and even libraries for offering books or curriculum that conservatives are not happy with. In one of those states, Oklahoma, a bill sets a $10,000 bounty to be collected by parents for each day a challenged book remains on library shelves. What's up with Republican legislators and bounties? These are frightening times, y'all. A war against books is a war against knowledge. In this case, the deliberate erasure of anyone who is not white, cis, straight, and Christian. Last night, on the first day of Black History Month, we talked about the dangers of this movement. It is rooted in anti-blackness. The bans are also designed to erase the LGBTQ and trans experience, with titles such as these on the chopping block. There are also other states, dozens where bans are happening on the school board level. Books on race and sexuality are disappearing from Texas schools in record numbers. In Mississippi, a mayor is withholding more than $100,000 from his city's library because LGBTQ books are on the shelves. But the biggest legislative whore is happening, naturally, in Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis and his witch hunters are leading an assault on so-called corporate wokeness and critical race theory, which we know isn't really about critical race theory, but instead about fear-mongering far-right dog whistles, and wrapping kids in dystopian bubble wrap so that 
no uncomfortable feeling can ever penetrate. Happy. Everyone's so happy. For DeSantis, banning the 1619 Project wasn't enough. Now he's trying to ban feelings such as white discomfort and guilt and overall crumminess in a series of bills that are marching through the committee process while ensuring it's guns and not books that people, including children, can have access to. Florida's Republican leaders, and I say leaders in scare quotes, you are the absolute worst. Up next, it's not just about books. One of these Florida bills will forbid discussions. We'll be right back. What they're doing isn't solving the underlying problem. The underlying problem is that students aren't feeling safe at school. They aren't feeling comfortable at school. And that's why a lot of times kids have higher suicidal rates because they don't feel loved, they don't feel safe in their schools. Students are speaking out against a bill in Florida that could forbid the discussion of sexual orientation or gender identity in schools and encourage parents to sue schools or teachers that engage in these topics. Opponents have dubbed it the Don't Say Gay Bill. Joining me now is Brandon Wolf, Press Secretary of Equality Florida and a Pulse nightclub shooting survivor. Brandon, it is always good to see you, but unfortunately, when I see you, it's usually to talk about something that is just absolutely horrific that's happening in the state of Florida, most lately from the governor there. So um, you yourself are somebody who has survived gun violence, terrific, horrific gun violence. Someone else who did, um, whose daughter was killed uh, in the Parkland shootings, Fred Guttenberg tweeted this. Four years ago, my beautiful daughter, Jamie, was murdered by a student with an AR-15 in school. She was likely reading a book. Four years later, the Florida legislature is working on banning books to try to make it easier to get, but making it, but making it easier to get guns. Less books, more active shooter drills. And Christian uh, Chastin Buttigieg, the husband um, of Secretary Pete Buttigieg, said, you're literally going to, to make people die. These are going to, you know, he says here, you're purposely making a state law harder, that your state a harder place for LGBTQ kids to survive in. In a national survey, Trevor Project, 42% of LGBTQ youth seriously considered attempting suicide last year. Now they can't even talk to their teachers. I'm just going to let you talk. Well, listen, I mean, you laid it out, right? This is the worst kept secret in Florida that DeSantis really wants to run for president in 2024, but he hears footsteps down the hall behind him, and that's from another self-obsessed political mercenary by the name of Donald Trump. And so he has cooked up this slate of bills, I'm calling it the buffet of culture war issues, uh, in order to help him outflank Trump to the right and, and ultimately give the state government license to police us everywhere, whether it's classrooms or doctor's offices or, or even in our own private workplaces. And all of this happens while actual issues in Florida go unaddressed. Let's talk about the fact that rent in Florida went up 29% in 2021. Let's talk about the, fu- the fact that, that corporations, corrupt corporations, uh, bought and paid for election cycles last season. Um, but while these things are nothing more than just political chess pieces to people like Governor Ron DeSantis, as you mentioned, the impacts are on real people. The impacts are on people trying to access health care in the middle of a deadly pandemic. The impacts are on families and educators who are gonna be forced to hide in the closet to avoid a lawsuit from a bounty hunter neighbor. The impacts of an abortion ban are on women who have the prying eyes of Governor Ron DeSantis looking over their shoulders in their doctor's offices. And as Chastin rightly pointed out, the impacts are on LGBTQ young people who are already four times as likely to attempt suicide before they graduate high school. 
The truth is that DeSantis is an amateur dictator trying desperately to beat Trump at his own game. But Floridians are the ones paying the price yeah. for his political ambitions. And it's Floridians like us, LGBTQ people. You know, and, and I'm glad you said the word dictator, because there is a strong authoritarian streak to DeSantis, much like his his cousin in Palm Beach. I mean, the idea that you're going to have basically parents reporting on each other, which is similar to what you had in Virginia, people collecting bounties. These states are passing laws that are essentially sort of creating an almost old Soviet Union vibe in this country. But the, the point of it is to say you may not talk about race. They, they've, they, they've said that very clearly. But they're really zeroing in in a lot of these laws on saying you can't cannot talk about being gay. You definitely can't be trans and play sports. You definitely you should just hide and not exist. That feels to me like, you know, sort of 70s Soviet Union. Yeah, I mean, I'm calling it the surveillance state, right? We're the Democratic People's Republic of Florida. And Governor Ron DeSantis likes to talk about Florida being a free state. <laughs> but the truth is, you are free in Florida, free to do as you are told when you are told to do it. You are free if you are, as you pointed out, a cisgender, heterosexual white man in a position of power. All of these bills are designed to target marginalized people, to drive wedges between Floridians, uh, to rile up an extremist right wing base so that Governor Ron DeSantis can not only slide into reelection in 2022, but can elevate himself to the top of the presidential ticket in 2024. And the real the real shame of it all is that it's it's the most marginalized people who are impacted. It's the people who need us right now. It's the people who should be affirmed and celebrated and uplifted so that they have a shot to be the best version of themselves. And instead, we have a governor in Ron DeSantis and Republican leadership underneath him that are simply using people like us as political pawns to help reach their next destination. And can you just talk, because you do wear these sort of two hats and these experiences that you've had, what do you, what does it mean to be in a state where a governor is doing this at the same time they're making it easier and easier and easier for even young people to get their hands on firearms? It's absolutely terrifying. And, you know, I would say for me, that's the most egregious and insulting part of the Don't Say Gay bill. The bill is very simple. It says that there can be no discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity in schools. And my question is, does that mean that the lives and legacies of the best friends that I had who were murdered on a dance floor at Pulse nightclub are no longer allowed to be discussed and celebrated in a classroom? That is deeply offensive, and it dooms us to repeat the mistakes that we've made throughout our history. Yeah. The only way that we can make this country a better place is if we're honest about who we are who we've been and where we're going. Yeah. Pumping kids' heads full of propaganda isn't going to make this country great. Yeah, I can still remember when my seventh grader um, came home and talked about his teacher having his, you know, his husband's picture on the desk at, at work and at school. And he'd be like, oh, he introduced us to his husband that way. That, is that illegal now in Florida? I, I don't even know. Would he get in trouble? It's, it's wild. Uh, Brandon Wolf, thank you very much. Appreciate you. That is tonight's readout. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.